Hi, and welcome to Islington Baptist Church's podcast. This is where you'll find our weekly Bible talks from our church service every Sunday. We hope you enjoy and you might like to leave us a review or rating. Um, let me ask as we begin, how does change happen? How does, how does change happen? Like if you want to see some new reality in your life or your circumstances, or maybe a new habit of some kind, or you want to get rid of something that you don't like about yourself, of how you're behaving in some way, how, how does that actually happen? What is required? And how do you hope it might happen in the future? You know, maybe there's some sinful habit or an idolatrous habit even. How do you expect change might happen? And who is it that you think might bring that about? You know, so often I think we want the, the quick fix, the, the silver bullet solution to difficulties in our life, whatever they may be. And maybe it's a, a new technology we hope for that will come, and that will fix our problems. That will make life better for us. We will be better people as a result. Or some amazing, strong leader. A new friend, maybe, who has the skills to come into your life and help you out, to work alongside you, who's strong in that particular area. Or maybe a partner who can come along and, and bring change to your life. A, a friend or someone like that. Someone with great appeal to you. See, for God's ancient people, change was never easy. And it was rarely quick as well. It only came after they sinned and sinned some more and sinned a little bit more. And so what happened was whole generations would grow up not knowing God, not worshipping Yahweh, their God as king. And so the children of those generations would grow up knowing nothing of Yahweh, let alone worshipping him. And they'd fail to teach those after them and the people would end up in all sorts of difficult situations and under much punishment from God. See, in that context, in fact, in any context, you can't just remain neutral. You can't just remain neutral if you ignore or forget God. The Israelites, God's people, worshipped idols, other gods like these, serving them, giving their time to them, giving their energy to them, their, their possessions even, even their bodies they would give over to some of these gods in detestable practices in the temples of these gods. They promised great things, some alternate power or promise other than what Yahweh their God had promised and yet the Israelites ran to them. They called out to these lesser gods who promised change and yet they were mute gods just wood and stone representing various heavenly deities sometimes, spirits, often unknown deities. And for years and years, generations even, the Israelites worshipped these other gods. Are we like them? Are we like them? Our gods might look a little different, and yet we give ourselves over to things at times that look appealing, that look powerful, that look slick, that promise something to us that might bring about change in our life. And these things take our time. They take our thoughts, they take our possessions, they even take our bodies sometimes in how we use our bodies. And why do we give ourselves over to them? We give ourselves over in the hope that they might bring some change to us. 
Here's a researched list of possible idols that might be present in our lives. Comfort, control, money, approval, success, social influence, political power, all these things calling out to us and promising us something, some kind of change. What's an idol? An idol is really something that's not ultimate that we treat as ultimate. Something that's not ultimate in the world that we treat as ultimate. We treat as most important in our lives. We yearn for it, we search for it, but God is not like these idols. He doesn't work as they do. And as we've seen so far, we're in the book of Judges and we're seeing God's ancient people running after these idols. And then these deliverer leader judge figures coming along. God giving them a deliverer, a rescuer of some kind. And the background so far is that Israel's entered the land God has promised to them. Joshua, their leader, has died. And there in that land, Israel are to be God's faithful people living under God's rule. And part of that looked like removing the Canaanites because removing them meant removing their worship and not becoming syncretistic with that worship and becoming like them. Now, this is not just one tribe being commanded to displace another tribe for the sake of what their own means or their own desire or using a divine prerogative to underwrite their own territorial agenda or something like that. Now, Israel here are part of God's plan to go into the land and cleanse it of horribly evil practices that were going on there, to push back the dark spiritual powers in that place that had enslaved the people of Canaan and would enslave the Israelites should they end up not removing the gods and the worship of the Canaanites. Why? So that this blessed people, God's people, could be a blessing eventually to all people. Blessed to be a blessing. And the conquest began well. We see that the people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua. And yet, just a few verses later, still in the introduction to the judges, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals, the the other gods. They forsook the Lord. And the consequence, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them. Now, that's significant. The hand of the Lord was against them. Not not the Canaanites against them, but it's put as the hand of the Lord was against them. Not against the Canaanites, God wasn't, but against his own people here. God doesn't put up with sin. God does not put up with sin. And yet, despite their sin and his opposition to that sin, God has not forgotten his promise to make a great nation of these people that they might be a blessing to the other nations. And so, 2 verse 18, the Lord raised up a judge for them. And this judge was with them and saved them, a leader-deliverer kind of figure. And as long as the judge was with them, was, was lived with them, they, they had peace. The Lord relented because of their groaning under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But then when the judge died, we all come back to the cycle again. This cycle, the cycle of sin, and then oppression from the people, and judgment of God, and repentance from the people. They'd finally turn, then God would deliver them, and then there'd be a time of peace, and just as faithfully as a Toyota Corolla keeps going round and round and round and round and round, so this cycle would just go round and round and round. We, before we even meet one of the judges, we already know the story. And there's no spoiler alerts here for us. And so the question comes, why read on? 
we already know this is going to happen for the next whole bunch of chapters. Well, for one, they're pretty gripping accounts, as we've seen already this morning. They're pretty fascinating accounts. That's worth reading. And they're not actually all the same, though the cycle is the same. There's progressions within them, so there's things to notice. But even more, I think we're meant to experience the repeated storyline. We're meant to experience it and work out how do we find ourselves in this story and where does God in his deliverance come and how does that come even for us as his people today? That's what this book is doing. And so we get into this first part of the story. The backdrop here is is chapter 3, verse 5 and 6. The Israelites who are meant to cleanse the land, as we saw in that Deuteronomy passage. And what happened? They did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord and they served the Baals and the Ashtoreths. They lived amongst the people and they lived like the people, the people who they were meant to remove. Here it's intermarriage, which is an issue because effectively... In that time and place, this meant intermarrying into a whole different belief system, becoming just like the people, taking on their ethical framework. It's syncretism to a sinful way of life. They served their gods, we read here. Verse 7 summarizes, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And notice here how it's evil in the eyes of the Lord. It's not just evil, though evil really is evil because it's in the eyes of the Lord. Because it's in the sight of God and it's against Him, that's what really makes something evil. It's a definition of all human sin and all human rebellion. And it might have a horizontal dimension. We might hurt one another as we do evil. Intermarriage with the Canaanites would have had some horizontal dimension to it. But primarily, evil is against God. Evil is against God living our way, not his way. And for the Israelites, it's very plainly against God because they set up and worshipped other gods. For us, it might be a little less plain, but it's always against God. The Canaanite deities were deities of wind and fertility and rain. And often worship of those gods meant actions towards them, even sexual actions towards them, detestable actions in their temples, giving yourself over to them even, such that they might give you what they supposedly promise, the wind, the the fertility, the rain, whatever it may be. Now, all sin is bad. This is obviously bad, as God's people are in the land and and meant to be worshipping him. And the consequence, verse 8, God's anger burned against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of Cushan, Rishathaim, king of Aram Naharim, to whom the Israelites were subject for eight years. King of double wickedness, literally, is his name. Serving idols, serving other gods has consequences. It leads to being controlled by them, even tyrannized by them. Compromise led to being compromised. And the same thing can happen to us today. Here, God hands them over to this other leader, ruler, to be subject to them to him to eight, for eight years. But verse 9, remember how the cycle works? When they cried out to the Lord, he raised up for them a deliverer, Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, who saved them. They cry out, rescue me, help us God. And immediately God does upon their call after this long period of them ignoring and running away from God. 
Now, Othniel here is of Israelite origin, Caleb's, uh, related to Caleb. And verse 10, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, which is significant. God empowers this man for a particular task. And we read that in different places throughout the Old Testament, where God will come upon someone with his Spirit for a particular purpose, for a particular time, and then his Spirit might leave them. It's usually a temporary thing. It doesn't mean the person was especially good. And that's worth us keeping in mind as we look through the judges where this is mentioned. It doesn't mean the person suddenly becomes good and pure in all their actions either. Just that God has a role for them for a time and he empowers them to do it. The role for Othniel is became Israel's judge, went to war, and the Lord gave him into their, the king into their hands. And the land had peace for 40 years, verse 11, until Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. And so that's the final stage of, of this cycle. Peace, deliverance. But didn't we already know this was going to happen before we began? I showed you the cycle. Judges showed us the cycle beforehand. We knew this would be the pattern. What's God telling people, us now, people back then who would read these accounts and hear of them through the oral traditions, what's he telling people by recounting this first story? I think we see here that God's sovereign working is very, very obvious. He hands his own people over to be oppressed as a punishment for their sin. Powerful, even doubly wicked kings are within his realm of influence and power. God is not weak, but strong. He's sovereign even in dealing with sin, even the sin of his own people, and in deliverance. Deliverance even of his own people and from sin and its consequences. How? Through this spirit-empowered deliverer. This is our God. If we are his people by aligning with his son, the Lord Jesus, this is our God. Now, our sin may not look like bowing down to those wooden and stone statue idols or sacrificing at some pagan temple. God's rescue for us might not look like a military victory. But he remains a God who cannot stand sin and evil and bowing down to anything that is other than him. And he will punish sin. And he'll deliver from sin's consequences when we cry out to him. Ultimately, by his spirit-empowered Messiah, the, the Lord Jesus. This is the first story, this first judge, a man of pedigree, military prowess, it seems, leadership prowess, who didn't intermarry like his fellow Jews and was a deliverer. And yet, we're reminded that they're saved not by his strength, but by the Spirit of the Lord. The Lord raised up the deliverer. The Lord saved his people. The second deliverer is maybe a little more surprising then in light of that first deliverer. We met the second guy earlier, Ehud, a man who is introduced to us in identical fashion. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. The pattern begins again. And though this time we don't even know what their evil was, the consequences are the same. Because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. They become subjects of a foreign nation and a foreign ruler. In fact, this time it's, it's three nations. He gathers some friends to, to gather with them and they work together against the Amalekites and the Ammonites. And then Eglon came and attacked Israel and they took possession of the city of Palms, which is Jericho. And the Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. Now notice just even in that number, it's doubled plus a bit. It's more 
sin, more consequence, more oppression on their people, it took longer for them to repent, to cry out to the Lord, which they did in, down in verse 15 we read. And so we heard the story before, this, this guy Ehud, the left-handed guy and big, large Eglon, and he gets the sword and he's killed and then the Moabites are taken by the Israelites. What do we learn from this story? Well, I think firstly that Ehud is surprising, sinister even, shrewd. His left-handedness. Again, let me ask, who's left-handed here? The, the, the few, you've got to put, put your hand, nice, nice and proud of your left hand there. There we go. Why does that matter? Have a look around. Just keep your hand up, those people. Have a look around at those people. Just beware of them. They're tricky. Shrewd. See, if you're fighting with them, what do you expect? You expect the right punch. They're going to give you the other side. You won't be ready for it. Being a lefty at that time was an advantage. Eglon, as I said before, and his guards, they wouldn't have checked the custom-made sword on the right-hand side. They wouldn't have, Eglon wouldn't have expected it to come from that side and, and launch into his large belly. Eglon doesn't defend himself as a result of this guy's left-handedness. That's surprising. Also, Ehud is a, a Benjaminite, when that's mentioned, which actually means literally son of the right hand, ironically. And yet there's a few notable Benjamite, Benjaminites who were lefties. That was common for the Benjaminites. Who knows why? You can look into the genetics later. Now, especially when we remember back in one, chapter 121, the Benjamites there are portrayed negatively. Having not done what God commanded, they were meant, meant to go into the land and they were to take over Jerusalem, removing the Jebusites, but they didn't. They failed at that task. But Ehud's a Benjaminite. So that's mentioned, again, a little bit surprising. And he's somewhat sinister. Like this custom sword that he's planted in his right-hand side under his clothes before going... Like, he's got a plan. This is a planned move. And the sword probably doesn't have like the normal cross or whatever you call the bit above your hand after you hold it. Because it's gone right in. It's, a bit of a, it's very custom. Maybe that helped him conceal it down his right-hand side. And then he sends tribute in advance... And, and talks about a secret message from God. Now, if someone says to you, I've got a secret message for you, what kind of person are you? Are you the person, yep, I'm ready to hear it. Bring it on. Or are you the, I don't want to know. <laughs> it worked for him. And then he escapes, possibly even through the latrine, as one of the translations puts it. And so it's all through this guy's ingenuity that then he says, as he says himself, the Lord has given Moab, your enemy, into your hands. And so God uses this sinister, shrewd, quirky individual. And God gives them 10,000 strong Moabites into their hands, struck down, at a moment when they had no leader, the Moabites. And the land had peace for, for 80 years following that point. Now, the other thing to note in this story is this King Eglon's size. Like, that, that's distinctive, isn't it? It's mentioned to us. He's a very large man. The sumo king, we might call him. Back then, this meant wealth. This meant greed and power. This guy ate as he wanted. And how did he fund all of that? From the tribute from the people he oppressed, the Israelites. He was greedy. 
No one had an answer to this guy's power. They were under his tyranny for some 18 years, and yet it's actually his largeness, his greed, that, that makes him particularly vulnerable in this circumstance. He's a large target. He can't move fast as he gets up from his seat when he says, uh, Ehud says he's got a message for him. That would take a little bit extra time, and the sword goes in. He doesn't suspect it. The Hebrew word in verse 29, literally, the way you have translated strong, literally means uh, rich or fat, large. And so the, the people have become like their king. They'd become fattened at Israel's expense, we might say. And Eglon, the names all have different meanings here, the Eglon means heifer or, or calf. And so we have this fattened calf here who's calling on Israel, exacting sacrifices from them and the gods of the people taking their sacrifices also. But this calf, Eglon, is now sacrificed to make a way for God to save his people and fulfill his purposes for good in the place of evil. And Eglon's not just large, is he? He's pretty silly. And maybe he's used to being safe in his place, surrounded by power and authority with all his money, he can pay for his guards and whatever. So when Ehud comes with this secret message, he's all ears. Maybe it's a word from those stone images that Ehud visited on the way back before he turned around. And maybe it's them, they've got a special message for me, I'm ready to hear it. He's all ears. And so Eglon clears out his guards and opens himself up to the attack. And those stone images, even just the mention of those twice, Verse 19 and then 26. I think that's intriguing. Like, Why do we need to know about where he turned around or where he passed on the way back? The stone images. What does that tell us? I think it's a reminder of what's going on here. The Israelites had come to worship these kinds of gods. That had become so normal for them that they were landmarks now. You know when you're driving somewhere or you're telling someone directions? When you go past that... Yeah, that train station, then turn left. When you go past the stone images, just, just whack a left there. Like that's how normal worship of the gods had become. They'd become like the nations. They were meant to be radically distinct people and stone images were now landmarks for them. So normalized. Israel really need a saviour. A saviour from the nations that were oppressing them, a saviour from their idols, and ultimately a saviour from themselves. And so God sends this surprising, sinister, shrewd saviour, and a sizable king is is struck down. But stone images remain as a sign of Israel's sin. And what will they do with them? What will they do with these images that are just throughout the land and people are worshipping them? Will they remove them? Will they deal with their sin problem? That question hangs over the next chapters. And what's God telling his people in years to come by including this account? You know, we should all be like Ehud, turn into lefties, conceal our swords. No, I don't think that's the message of this story. Or maybe we should all uh, be careful about our weight. Is that a message of this story? Well, again, no, I don't think that's the point of this being here. This story tells us of God's surprising salvation. Ehud is God's appointed deliverer for a particular time to deal with a particular opposition to God's rule that's expressed 
through his people in the land, or it's meant to be at least, if they are to obey him. And Ehud's role is not dissimilar in some ways to the people that he overcame. See, the Moabites, they were God's agent of judgment against God's people Israel for their sin. But that doesn't make their actions right. They still deserve judgment. Ehud is God's agent of judgment here against Moabite sin and its overflowing corruption and oppression of the people of Israel. And all of this reveals something about sin, doesn't it? It's messy. Sin is messy. It's everywhere. It's in everyone. And yet still God manages to further his plans to save his people, that they might be a blessing to the nations. In a sense, God must work in surprising and strange ways when we consider that we're all sinful people, right? If God is to use any human, it's going to be some surprise. Could he work through any of us if he didn't use surprising means? Well, that's the second judge, and he's this guy Ehud, in possibly the most unexpected story in the whole of the Bible. I used to work with a guy who wrote this little book, Weird, Crude, crude Funny and Nude, The Bible Exposed. And he has a whole chapter on this story, Ehud, which is called The Fat, the Poo, and the Left-Handed Man. You know, it's a strange story, and yet it's included in the pages of our Bible. It has a purpose for us. Now, the final story in this little triad is just one verse. This guy named Shamgar. After Ehud came Shamgar, son of Anath, who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad. He too saved Israel. And again, we ask, why is this here? What do we learn from this? Ox goads should be used by the Australian army for war. Is that the message? You can see a picture of one there. I don't know how good they'll be. They're farming tools. It's a strange, surprising salvation again. I think it's here to continue that theme, to remind us that this is God working in surprising ways Saving in surprising ways. Shamgar is not actually likely to be a Hebrew name. He's an outsider. And so he's presented as this mysterious figure using this ox goad, probably because he's a farmer, not a warrior. He's a really surprising saviour. A random is used by God to save his people. Why? Again, so he can maintain his promise that they might be a blessing, blessed to be a blessing. And so these accounts, these three accounts, they they build upon one another and they become increasingly surprising. It's Israel do evil and then they again do evil and then evil has become so normal in the land it's not even mentioned what the evil is that they do. Evil and humanity go hand in hand. We lean towards it like a, a lawn bowl leans towards its bias. Our bias is often towards evil. And God punishes evil. We've seen that. He continues to punish evil, even that of his own people and the evil of the nations. Which means we can know that when God punishes, that's actually a good and just and right thing. And we can know that in the end, as God promises to punish all evil, we can trust him with that and take refuge that God's justice will come on every evil perpetrator and tyrant and abuser. God is just. God is righteous. 
He has punished evil and certainly will punish evil. And yet God also has this bias. As we have this bias towards evil, God has a bias. He leans towards mercy. His character is to save people. And often in surprising ways, even unpredictable ways. This man of Jewish pedigree with the spirit of Yahweh first, and the bold Benjaminite, the lefty, and then this random outsider. God leans towards mercy. He saves in surprising ways. Which is not just true in weird, crude, gory Old Testament stories like these. It's true in the weird, gory New Testament story too. That of Jesus. You think about Jesus' death. First Jesus' life, he's coming to earth. Where was he born? With the animals. To some outback strangers. And then he's stripped to basically nothing as he's then hung on a cross, publicly shamed, tried, basically naked. This sham trial that happens to get him to that place. People gambling for his clothes. It's strange. It's shocking. Jesus' death is familiar, but it's incredibly surprising. Jesus himself spoke of how surprising it would be. Greater love has no one than this, he said, to lay down one's life for one's friends. That's what he then does. Surprising love. That's the way of salvation. The way of Jesus. And it's the message that God explicitly chooses to share with even people like us and even through people like us. Look at these verses in 1 Corinthians. We preach what kind of message? A strong person? A saviour? who's strong and powerful. No, Christ crucified. A foolish message to the world. And God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. The lowly things and the despised things, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are. Why? So that no one may boast before him. This is the message. God leans towards mercy, surprisingly saves, and brings the message of salvation in surprising ways even through surprising people, people even like us. Let me pray. Our great God, we do thank and and praise you for this Jesus, this surprising saviour. You are powerful to save, and we acknowledge that. We've seen that in your people of old and in the person of Jesus, in what he's done for us. And so we pray we might be people of that saviour, people who trust in this surprising saviour and even willing to share the message as surprising individuals who might bring that message to people around us. Amen.